0: Everybody here. I think we have a few more folks than normal. That's great. Uh, Should have a blue handout. Everybody has a blue handout? Good. You'll be lost without it, so make sure you got a blue handout. Um, We are in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 23, uh, which is uh, a, a large portion of scripture that we're covering that uh, really we've entitled Paul's warnings against heresy and there are four warnings in the passage one against false philosophy and this is right on the handout right under number one uh, False uh, Roman number one uh, false philosophy verses 8 through 15 legalism verses 16 and 17 angel worship in verses 18 and 19 and asceticism verses 20 through 23. So we've been uh, in chapter 2, verses 8, and we are on 10, 11, and 12, and 13. Uh, We got through 10 and part of 11 last week. I've I've changed a few things to clarify and to make sure that uh, um, I'm teaching you the correct thing. And I'll, I'll I'll talk about those as we get to them. And uh, so let's have a word of prayer. And some of you have scriptures to read too, and I'll call your name when it's time to do that. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word. I thank you for so much for each person represented here we lord we want to extend a warm welcome to those that are here and those that are that are watching online we pray father that your blessing upon everyone we know that many are ill many have difficulties and trials they can't be here some are here and have those very same things we pray father for for healing for all for your comfort for all and most of all father i pray that you would help us to understand this passage and understand exactly what you meant for Paul to express to us the power of the Spirit when he wrote the book of Colossians. I thank you for the blessing that this passage, these passages have been to me and the encouragement that I've received from them. I pray, Father, that you would encourage all of us as we read about who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what has been done for us as Christians. Thank you, Father, again for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, if you would turn to Colossians 2, we're going to read verses 8 through 23. And I want to read that section, which is the whole section of the warnings. And I'm going to tell you which verses apply to which warning. And philosophy is verses 8 through 15 first. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also... Uh, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you... And verse 16 and 17 are legalism, his warning against legalism. Let no man. Therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of the thing of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And then 18 and 19 are angel worship. Let no man beguile you of your reward in, volu- in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up, by his fleshly mind and not holding the head from whom all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God and 20 through 23 is asceticism and that's really kind of a form of works it's self-denial and mistreating the body to suppress the flesh uh, to atone for sin and so forth. So, verse 20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Okay, so you saw the different passages. We've done that before. I want us to be familiar with with those by the time we get through all of them. So the first thing that we looked at a few weeks ago was the warning against false philosophy. And we're still on that section, but the actual warning is in verse 8 in the handout under number 1. The specific warning stated was, beware lest any man spoil you, and that word means to kidnap you and to take you away, captive, through philosophy and um, vain deceit or empty delusion, if you will. And... This is the only use of that word in the New Testament. There are several words in this passage that it's the only use in the New Testament. And that usually means there's a a special meaning he's trying to get across. So simply stated, the false teaching, and I'm reading right from the handouts, this false teaching, particularly the false philosophy of the heretics, was not in accord or agreement with truth as revealed in Christ. Christ is the true test of theology, and He's the absolute standard of measurement for all doctrine. If it's not in accordance with Christ and the revelation God has given to us regarding His Son, then we must reject it. So, the basis and foundation of the warning in verse 8 and verses 9 through 15 uh, show that uh, verse 9. The supremacy and de- deity of Christ. Paul's warning is based on or founded upon Christ's unique, soul, singular, unshared supremacy. And this is the basis of who Christ is. Christ is God. Why should we focus on anything else? We should focus on Christ. And verses 10 through 15 the basis of the warning is his sufficiency and humanity. And these speak to Christ's absolute and complete sufficiency and his capability and ability, his qualification to meet man's need. Uniquely, the only man that could meet man's need, the only God, man. So, F.F. F. Bruce, uh, a, a, te- a um, scriptural scholar, said Christ is all and all you need. So Christ is supreme, he is above all, and he is all that we need. He, he can satisfy, he's sufficient to meet all the needs that we have. So, and I wrote, Christ is the sole or only source for what you need. And the note here, the impact of this passage in verses 9 through 15, this warning, these warnings, Actually, the warning for false philosophy is because of who Christ is, he's God. And what we find in him, that's the sole sufficiency to meet our needs, any other tradition of man, including philosophy, legalism, worship, asceticism, those are false because it's not after Christ. All else is false teaching. Erroneous heresy. And we talked about the fact a few weeks ago, you know, these people that are in the upper crust of society, Hollywood and others and philosophers, they go different things, different ways, looking for satisfaction for what they know is lacking in their lives. They go see the Dalai Lama, or they go see some Eastern mysticism person, or they go And check out Hinduism, Buddhism, Eastern mysticism, whatever. And none of those work. Uh, Some people beat themselves up. You see those people climbing these steps in the uh, foreign countries on their knees, and they're bleeding, and they're doing this as part of asceticism to beat down the flesh, hoping that they're going to somehow please God by these types of actions. But all of that is false. Christ is a god he is um, he is uh, he is the way the truth and the life okay So there are three affirming statements in verses 9 and 10 that relate to Christ as supreme and sufficient. They demonstrate that Christ is supreme and he is sufficient. And that's the basis and foundation. So the first statement is at the bottom of page 1 on your handout. The full deity of Christ in verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Now, and it goes on to say bodily, but that's the next statement. So this verse is one of the clearest and strongest statement in the Bible of the deity of Christ. It also continues the theme fullness mentioned in Colossians 1.19. And him all the fullness should dwell. So in, in Christ dwells, all the fullness of the Godhead. Look at the top of page two. What Paul has done, and he is masterful at this, and this is I really love these letters and these communications because he, he addresses different things that are going on in the church, but he takes in this case the word fullness in the Greek, which is pleroma, which is a word we talked about used by false teachers wrongly. And he more properly uses it to describe Christ as God who is the real fullness of the Godhead. Now, the Gnostics, who we think were the people that this was written uh, about, the heresy, was describing either Gnostics or the beginning of Gnosticism, they were called the knowing ones. And I told you how I just got really... One morning I was looking at, well, what do these guys really believe? And I just, it was so murky, is the best word I can think of, I couldn't figure out what they were saying. But essentially they were saying that uh, there's a fullness and that fullness is what God is in their view, and also what heaven is, and it's also what can happen inside you. You can get a fullness. And there's a whole hierarchy between God and man and there are different creatures in there, uh, heavenly creatures, emanations, spirits, angels, um, and those are, your knowledge of those things, your special knowledge can help you know God through those. Now, that's all false because Christ who is the real fullness of the Godhead, is the very essence of God. It means he is God. He's not merely God-like. He is God. So, and what the Gnostics taught is in the note there. Um, the last, next to the last sentence says, Paul said Christ is God himself and the full And complete expression, revelation and essence of God. And he uses this term full and complete and he takes that term away from the heretics and takes and redefines it and then expresses it to use against them. Now I just think that's masterful. I love that. You know, to take your enemies who are doing horrible things, take their own language, redefine it, and use it against them. Love it. So the real humanity of Christ is the second statement. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And uh, here is an indication that Christ was in the flesh, God was in the flesh, and he was fully God and fully man. And that's based on John 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word meaning, uh, notice it's capitalized, God's expression to us, the Word of God. In the eternity past, the Lord Jesus Christ, before He came in human form, He was with God. There was no beginning. I know I can't understand that either. In the beginning there was no beginning. In eternity past, God was. And so was Christ with him. The Word was with God the Father. And uh, when Christ, the Word, who is God, was clothed with flesh, when he came in Bethlehem and was born, he became in the flesh incarnate. He was still Christ, who is God. God is Christ is fully human and fully divine. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 So, he's fully God and fully man. The third statement is number three there, the sufficiency of Christ. He is complete he's completely able and capable. He has the qualification in verse 10 and ye are complete. See how, this is one of the changes I made. You see the big letter they are underlined incomplete, complete. So I did that so we wouldn't miss it. And ye are complete. That's you and me and the Colossians. And ye are complete, that is full, in him who is the head of all principality and power. Whatever the Gnostics thought was between heaven and earth or in heaven, Christ is over all of those. There, there's nothing that exists that he's not over as far as hierarchy now because Christ is fully God see the note there and fully man we are made complete we are made full as we share his fullness in him in union with him and only as we are joined to Christ is this fullness ours the main point is that in Christ our every spiritual need is met because of His resources, Christ's resources made available to us in Him. Possessing Him, we possess all. Vaughn expressed it. I really liked that. If we have the Lord Jesus Christ, we're saved, and He is living within us, we we possess all. We have all the resources, and we're going to see that as we go along. Uh, MacArthur said believers are complete full, whole in Christ both positionally that means how God the Father sees us by the imputed perfect righteousness of Christ. We talked about imputation that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us and and our sins are imputed to Him. So he's, when God the Father sees us uh and we, he declares us righteous and the sense of justification. Um, and the complete, and then the second way that we are complete is due to the complete sufficiency of all heavenly resources for spiritual maturity. We have the full resources of the Lord Jesus Christ to help us to be like Christ and to be like him. And in, in the past, I've read quotes to you that said, if we have all those resources, why do we live like we're in poverty? We, we We live like we are poor, but we are rich beyond all blessings. And, you know, as I was reading this yesterday, I was just so blessed by this. We have the ability, and these things need to be developed. It's not like you press a button and it happens <laughs> these things we learn to appropriate and to be and and to the power of the holy spirit and christ but we have there all the resources of the lord jesus christ for spirit god for spiritual maturity paul shows the, the colossians then That there's no need for the Christians to turn anywhere else. Why would you turn anywhere else but to God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, for spiritual help? You don't need philosophy. You don't need the laws or angels or asceticism or works. Christ is all and all we need. Uh, Again, quoting Bruce. And Wesley has said, Thou, O Christ, art all I need, more than all in thee I find. So, Christ's all sufficiency is shown by the statement that he is, in verse 10, the head of all principality and power. And it means the, the, what that means is he's the source of life. I've wrote that down, the creator over all existence. He's the sovereign Lord, supreme over all existence, and he's the sustaining Lord maintaining over all existence now that's not mine I'd like to take credit for that because it's all alliterated but that's not mine Christ is all and all you need Bruce okay so there are three things that Christ has done for us that substantiate his sufficiency and these three things show that we are complete again that word pleroma we are complete in him we are full in Him. These are in verses 11 through 15. Now, we looked at last week's spiritual circumcision, verses 11 and 12, and we did not look at forgiveness of sins. We're going to endeavor to do that, depending on how things go. Verses 13 and 14, we, I uh, only have 13 prepared. And then victory over forces of evil in the future, verse 15. Let's look at the top of page 3 spiritual circumcision, verses 11 and 12. Now, this is, uh, this has always been a passage in the past uh, that can, I consider to be possibly confusing. But once you understand what he's saying, you go, oh, yeah. Okay. So, I want you to be able to say, oh, yeah. Okay. So, I'm going to give you a quote. I read this last time, but I want to read it again. It's from Charles Erdman, who has a gift at summarizing very eloquently what something is saying. Okay, and so the verse is chapter 2, verse 11 In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, so Erdman says up to the measure of human capacity, up to the limit of ideal human destiny, in other words what we think humans sh- should possibly become, Christians are made partakers of that divine life of beauty and holiness and love which in its fullness dwells in Christ, they need no—they need to seek no other source of grace. They can show allegiance and submission to no other spiritual beings, for Christ is the head of all principality and power. Now I'm reading—I'm reading a quote that's not in your handout. Least of all. Need they place reliance on the Jewish ordinances and ceremonies advocated by the false teachers? Those things that are now passed away because they were under law, they were trying to go back to those. The typical rite was that of circumcision. The reality corresponding to that symbol of circumcision had already been experienced. In other words, it's over now. By accepting Christ, by abandoning, abandoning their sins by their spiritual renewal, salvation, they had received the true circumcision, spiritual circumcision. They had been, as Paul declares, circumcised with the circumcision not made with hands and the putting off of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. So that old circumcision was passed now there's a spiritual circumcision which is symbolic not actually made with hands okay now look at page 3 top under spiritual circumcision item A in him or it's really in whom verse 11a that means in union with Christ joined or connected to Christ Um, and that's since it's at the beginning of the sentence, that means in Greek it's very emphatic. In Christ, in Him, in union with Him, the circumcision without hands contrasts the Christian's true spiritual circumcision, salvation, that circumcision by Christ in salvation with the old physical circumcision of the Mosaic Law. Now, falsely mandated by the false teachers and the Judaizers as well. Those those that wanted to hold on to the law. Uh, the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. So the old circumcision reflected uh, the cutting away symbolically of man's uncleanness as an outward sign of one's participation in Israel's covenant with God. Remember the Israelites got in trouble because every once in a while a whole section wouldn't do the right and uh, circumcision, and they would get in trouble, and because that was the sign of the covenant. Um, that's a quote from Vaughn. This physical circumcision was made by hands on an external organ of the body. In contrast to that, Christ's circumcision is spiritual and not made with hands. It's not physical. It does not relate to a single organ, but it relates to the inner spiritual man and it's expressed in Romans uh, 2.28 and 29 as circumcision of the heart. So this is kind of a difficult passage because uh, Paul's making a point in Romans 2.28 and 29. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Now he's talking about physical descendants of Abraham who were uh, circumcised. Neither is that circumcised, circumcision which is outward of the flesh. He said, that's nothing now. Verse 29, but he is a Jew, and he's talking about a true spiritual child of God, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter under the law whose praise is not of men, but of God. So, uh, the quote by uh, MacArthur says, the outward right of circumcision was of value only when it reflected the inner reality of the heart separated by sin unto God. So, also Philippians 3.3, 3 we reference for we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh here he's using that as a metaphor to describe we are the ones who have had salvation that word circumcision there means circumcision of the heart or circumcision of Christ. So it's used like that by Paul to make during that transition part from the law to the to the church. Hey, this was the old. This is the new. Okay. So spiritual circumcision is a cleaning cleansing of sin that comes by faith in God. MacArthur quote. See and putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay. Uh, I want to share... So, I wanted to share a quote here by MacArthur that talks about some of these terms and helps a little bit. Circumcision the old circumcision symbolized and this is a quote not in your handout. Circumcision symbolized man's need for cleansing of the heart and was an outward sign of cleansing of sin that comes by faith in God. Remember Abraham believed God and and therefore he obeyed God and, and he believed God and that was counted to him for righteousness. At salvation Believers undergo a spiritual circumcision by putting off of the sins of the flesh. And this is the new birth. This is the new creation in conversion. It's the outward affirming of the already accomplished inner transformation, which is now believers baptism by water. So he moves right into baptism here. So this can cause confusion. That's why I want to be careful. And I changed some things here to show circumcision in the Old Testament does not equal baptism in the New Testament. And we'll see why as we read this. Okay. The Greek word for putting off, because it says put off the body of sins, indicates a putting off or stripping off or casting away through the imagery and illustration of the word, uh, the act of removing and discarding filthy clothing. Uh, My dad, when I worked in the body shop, said that I could get dirtier than any human being doing less than anybody he ever knew. And that was true. I managed to always get the dirtiest. I don't know why, but I always did. And the clothes were usually ruined and I had to throw them away. Well, that's what this is talking about, taking these things off and throwing them away. Now this signifies at this statement here the putting off sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This signifies at conversion through the spiritual circumcision of Christ that believers have a removal or putting off of the sins of the flesh. Reading right for the handout. And a removal of the power of the flesh over us. As a result of salvation we are a new creation. We have a new nature, the new man, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can now put off the power of the flesh through uh, that operates through the function and influence of the fallen nature of the old man, our evil sin nature. The putting off and casting away is, is sometimes called the mortifying of the flesh and body. Now, through the new nature... The new creation of Christ, we are free to serve Him, finding deliverance from sin and victory over evil. And I found an old sermon of MacArthur, because they're all catalogued. And uh, it was this sermon, I'm going to read part of it. It said it was on Colossians' passage. And he starts out by showing these times in which the Lord Jesus healed somebody. And I'm going, am I looking at the wrong sermon or what? Maybe they miscataloged it. So I kept reading, and it, it talked about you know, the woman that touched his uh, hem of his garment. She was healed, and others that were healed, uh, the leper, etc. And then I figured out what he's doing, and here's what he says. Um, just this, it serves at least in my mind, and I trust in yours, As a beautiful picture of the way Jesus heals spiritually. It's a picture of healing spiritually. I said, ah, now I got it. If Jesus heals physical illness and makes people entirely whole, then that is precisely what is meant by the Apostle Paul in chapter 2, verse 10, when he says, and ye are complete in him. You could put the word whole in there just as Jesus Christ did miracles of healing that made people entirely well, so when Jesus touches a life spiritually and gives salvation, it is whole salvation. The person becomes spiritually entirely well. In fact, if you want to choose another Pauline term, he says if any man is is in Christ, he is a new creation. I mean, that is a brand new wholeness. Now, this is nothing new. God has always done that. When David cried out in the midst of his sin in Psalm 51.10, he knew what God would do, and God said, he asked, God created in me a clean heart, whole, no spot, no blemish. When God acts against sin, he is saving, uh, in his saving grace, there is a wholeness. So let's look first of all at the complete salvation. How are we complete, Paul? Number one, your salvation is complete. In verse 11, "...in whom also your circumcision with the circumcision made without hands, the spiritual circumcision of Christ, and putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which also you are risen with Him through faith, of the operation of God who's raised him from the dead. Now when we look at this, he says, look, your salvation is absolutely complete. There's no need for you to be circumcised in the old physical way. That was under the old covenant. You've been baptized. Now remember the heresy which the apostle Paul was combating a somewhat a baffling mixture of pagan beliefs of these inner, vast intermediaries between Jewish beliefs and also a mixture of legalism. Along with it, they're trying to create the idea that you have to be circumcised. And this isn't anything new. The Judaizers did it. You know, people say, well, Abraham was circumcised. Yeah, 14 years after he believed God and was saved, he was circumcised. So circumcision didn't save him. He was circumcised as a sign of a righteous heart. And that's the message. And what is true circumcision? Listen to me. It is cutting away everything from the life but the will of God. And Paul's message in Colossians 2.11 is this. It is spiritual surgery. The cutting away of self and sin. And only Christ can do that. So I thought that was a real down-to-earth explanation. I wanted to share that with you. I know that was a little long. So think of complete, that you're whole, that you're full. And um, Romans six six, uh, Christy, would you please read that, ma'am? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Yes. So we're for he that is dead is freed from sin in Romans seven, six, seven. Now, um Romans seven twenty-four, Connie. wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of his death? Paul is expressing his regret. He doesn't want to sin, but he's still in the the flesh, in the sense of his body is still there and he's still in the flesh. So this doesn't mean that we will never sin, it means that That uh, he now has power over that. Where he, you before you're saved, you only have the ability to sin because you only have the old nature and the flesh. Now the old nature was judged, and uh, you have power not to sin. Okay, let's look at uh, Second Corinthians five seventeen. Chuck. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Old, all things are Okay, and then we have a longer passage. Steve, uh, Ephesians 4, 17 through 22. Uh, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other uh, Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds, having the understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of the heart, who being past feelings have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so, be that ye have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning former conversations, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful deceitful lust. Yes. And in verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, verse 24, which is, which after Christ is created in the righteousness of two holiness. Uh, when he read the word conversation in the King James, uh, at the time that was written, that meant the conduct or the manner of living. So there, the former conduct or manner of living was a corrupt according to deceitful lust, as as Steve read at the very beginning. Uh, now we put on the new man, which is after God created. We don't have to sin anymore. We have the freedom to live for Christ. That's a big deal. Yes. <laughs> okay. And Colossians uh, 3, verses 9 to 10, Kathy Dean. Why not one to another, saying that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that's changed? Amen. And we have Ephesians, um, that's good. Coming up, we have Ephesians 2. Okay. wanted to share a word from uh, Elliot, Ellicott, rather, who is a uh, um, scriptural scholar. He, I found a great quote here. An early church father, whose name I can't pronounce, said that bodily circumcision, the old circumcision under the the Old Testament, that, that circumcision was of one member. And it was in mere symbolism of one form of purity. The spiritual circumcision that we have now is salvation, is the putting away of the whole of the power of the flesh. That is doing not in symbol, but in reality. So I like that comparison because it very succinctly shows that the other was a symbol, and even even a limited symbol. But now the reality is much larger. Okay, so item D here. Uh, I changed this as well to clarify some things. Buried with him in baptism. Uh, Wherein also ye are risen with him through, fa- through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. This is verse 12. This is a further emphasis of the new birth and the sufficiency of Christ and being made complete in him. All of these things reco- uh, show that we are complete, we are whole in Christ. And that's contrasted with the efforts of the old sinful flesh without Christ um, as taught by the heretics. And the verse shows that the baptism and the New Covenant and the New Testament is the external outward sign of what Christ has done for us inwardly through salvation. Now in baptism, and like everybody look at, I usually say look at me, but look at the handout and read this, not read it, but just follow along with me. Baptism is not, everybody see that under D, about 1, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines down. Baptism is not related to or a continuation of the circumcision of the Old Testament. Not related. Not connected. When we start to over identify things in the New Testament with the Old Testament it leads us to error. So we have to be very careful about that. So it's not related to the, to the circumcision of the Old Testament. Um, and this was not introduced to compare the two. So baptism is not discussed here for comparison, but it's used to emphasize the Christian, the believer, participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In Colossians 3, 1 through 10, um, If then you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you shall also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry, for, for which things sake... The wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. And this is what was read before. Lie not to one another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his Deeds. We now have the power to do that, and put on the new man. We now have the power to do that, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of Him that created him. Okay, so we uh, baptism is a, is a symbolizes the believer's participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, um, and buried with Him in baptism. Is identification with Christ. It's one of the two ordinances that we as Protestants, as Baptists, observe. We have the um, ordinance of the the Lord's Supper, communion. Well, that's not because the offering, that's not an ordinance. Communion, (laughs) it's worship, but it's not an ordinance, okay? So we don't believe that grace is dispensed through the communion, nor is it dispensed through baptism. It's a symbol. Those are symbols. We do communion, this doing remembrance of me. Uh, It also is a time that we can reflect on our lives and how we're doing and how we should be doing and a time that we can focus on God and do that in worship and do in obedience to the Lord. But baptism is also an ordinance that we do in obedience to him that shows that we, one time. That we have accepted Christ, and that we have been—it symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. Okay, so uh, Romans six, six to thirteen. Some of you are so fast; you can find it in your Bible faster than I can find my uh, pre-prepared uh, scriptures. I love that. Knowing this. Romans 6, 6 through 13. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. We're buried. We die with Christ. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over Him. For in that He died, He died unto sin once, but in that He liveth, He liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And again, we could not do that before. But now that we are saved and been made right with God, we can do that now. We can live for Him. So, faith Uh, now looking at faith in the operation or working of God that literally reads faith through the working of God and there's one little footnote to notice there MacArthur says in the middle of verse 12 it says through faith through the faith and operation of God, we who believe in God's power, we who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, will also be raised with Him. Is that right? Romans ten nine and ten says, "If thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in thine heart that uh, believe in that heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved." When you believe and confess with your mouth, your old life dies is buried, and you rise in newness of life, a spiritual miracle, and you know what you experience, and I experience, the same power with which he raised Jesus from the dead. Now, that always amazes me. That's a lot of power to raise the Lord Jesus from the dead, bearing all the sins of the world on him. So, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power which we are made to be risen with Christ. Operation means power, energy or power, and that's where we get the word from the Greek word energy here. So, one last scripture that I want to read before we close. If you want to turn here, you're welcome to do that. It's Ephesians 1.19-21, and I'm going to start with verse 18. Now, Paul says to the Ephesians, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory in his inheritance and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but in That which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness. There's the pleroma of him that filleth, and all, and that filleth is the verb for pleroma, pleroo, I think, and it means all things. So, the point I want to make here, uh, and MacArthur does it in a quote, he said, "The eyes of your heart enlightened. That's a, a spiritually enlightened heart, mind is the only means of truly understanding and appreciate the hope and inheritance in Christ and living obediently for Him. God's great power, the very power which raised Jesus from the dead and lifted Him by ascension back to glory to take His seat at God's right hand, is given to every believer." at the time of salvation, and is always available. We just have to learn how to use that. Paul, therefore, did not pray that God's power be given to believers. He didn't say, "The Lord, give them power. He said, he prayed that they would be aware of the power that they already possessed in Christ and use it. Now, how come we used to say instead of why in the south would say how come we live like we're poor we have the riches of Christ spiritually and i'm talking to myself yes <laughs> i'm pointing at you but five four fingers are coming back at me so and are you aware of the great power that is available to us to help us live our lives in the difficult times that we all face i don't Know all of you, but I know that every one, every family here has been touched by some kind of calamity, tragedy, difficulty, and Christ not only can help us in our spiritual life, but He can help us as we go through day by day to deal with these things. So, um, I did want to say that the act of baptism does not save. I skipped over that inadvertently. The power that um, the um, grace is not imparted. And baptism and communion that's what I meant when I said that so baptism does not save um, our time is up any questions okay if you have a question you can come and ask next week too let's pray father thank you for